Romans 13, 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The grass withers and the flower fades. Please open your Bibles with me to Leviticus chapter 19. We're going to be picking up again our study of Leviticus 19. We started last week, we're continuing this week, and we'll actually extend it into next week as well as a little bit of a teaser. You can find it on page 97 if you're using the Pew Bibles in front of you. And as you turn there, I want to share a conversation I had last week. Uh, I was in a pub. I was working on this sermon, and the person next to me noticed what I was doing and asked me a question eventually, why are you working on that here, Uh, which then sparked a wide-ranging conversation and a long conversation about her own background with Christianity. She was no longer a Christian. And she had many beefs with the faith uh, that she, she wanted to discuss. But the thing that seemed to bother her the most was that in her experience, Christians didn't seem to care for the poor. In particular, she was bothered by the fact that Christians didn't seem to care for the disadvantaged in our society, in particular, foster children. And for for her, it seemed that Christians were not concerned with helping these people that were in great need. The only thing, again, in her experience that Christians cared about was critiquing the behavior of other people, which is exactly why she was surprised to find a pastor in a pub working on a sermon. And I told her that the sermon that I was actually working on concerned the relationship between holiness and love, and she flat out said, there isn't one. It doesn't exist. Holiness and love don't mesh. Have you ever heard that critique before? Maybe you've uh, even felt it in your own life, in your own heart. I know that I've weathered that feedback Many, many times, things like Christians are too heavenly-minded to be of earthly good. That's kind of the nice way of putting it. Uh, Another way of putting it is you care too much about doctrine. You don't care enough about the poor. uh, Or simply just stop judging and start welcoming. I read a news story about that even this very morning. So what are we to make of this critique? That our emphasis on holiness actually diminishes our capacity to love. On the one hand, I think honesty requires us to say and to admit that there is, in fact, a disappointing tendency for Christians, including ourselves, to slide towards legalism, judgmentalism, 
uh, or moralism. The more that we talk about holiness, God's righteous demands in our life. But at the same time, I think we need to insist it's not meant to be that way. Holiness and love are meant to go hand in hand. According to Leviticus chapter 19, holiness demands love. Last week, we discovered that holiness really, really matters, right? Holiness matters. God is holy. God wants us to be holy. And at the same time, in the very same chapter, God says, if you want to be holy, you got to learn how to love. That's what Leviticus chapter 19 is going to teach us today. If you want to be holy, you got to learn how to love. So let's read Leviticus 19 again. And if you remember the sermon from last week, I invite you to bring all of that in as I reread the chapter that we studied last week. Remember, the Ten Commandments are all here. So be on the lookout for the Ten Commandments. Remember God's holiness and the attributes of holiness, integrity, justice, and mercy. And as we read, then let all of that come in to help you know how to love. This is God's holy word for us. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted. It will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason 
frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made with two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who is a slave, assigned to another man and yet not yet ransomed or given her freedom, a a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free, but he shall bring his compensation to the Lord, to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed. And he shall be forgiven for the sin that he has committed." When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruits as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God." You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head. And honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do wrong in judgment. In measures of length or weight or quantity, you shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for this word of holiness and this word of love, a scripture that clearly commands us to love, and so we ask now that you would teach us how to love. Speak to us, O God. Through your spirit, illuminate your word to us so that we can behold you and behold your character, and so that we would be caught up in that and so that we would be transformed in the light of your presence. 
Teach us to love, O oh God. Teach us to love you, to love each other, to love our neighbors. Teach us. Form us into the likeness of this passage, we pray. And speak to us now. Minister to us in the very real needs that we have. And the real questions and real situations that we have in our lives. This need to love. Minister to us and speak to us now through your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you want to know how to be holy, you got to learn how to love. As we saw last week and as we heard this morning already in the reading of the passage, Leviticus 19 is 100% about holiness. Verse 2 translates literally as, holy you shall be, for holy I am the Lord God. It's about holiness. And yet throughout the passage, in particular verses 18 and verse 34, we see that holiness requires love. If you want to be holy, you must learn how to love. And in order to do that, you need to know two things. These are the two things we're going to discuss this morning. First, what love looks like. And second, where the power for love comes from. What love looks like and where the power for love comes from. So let's ask this first thing. What does love look like? According to Leviticus 19, love is about commitment. Love is fundamentally about commitment. You've probably heard the phrase before, love is a verb, meaning that love is expressed through Actions, And that's certainly true, but Leviticus 19 actually moves it further and deeper than that. Love is not just about actions externally towards other people. Love is a commitment of the heart. Love is a commitment of the heart that drives an individual out to care for another person. Person. So again, we're, we're focusing on commitments that our, our mind and our heart have. And specifically, as we read our passage, there are four heart-level commitments of love that we need to understand. These four heart-level commitments. Love honors. Love protects. Love pursues. And love sacrifices. First, love honors. Love is committed to elevating and dignifying and esteeming others beginning with God. Love honors God. Love honors God, particularly as creator and as father. As Creator, God owns the entire universe. The entire cosmos is his. And he has embedded certain boundaries and principles in his created world. Things like animals are different from other animals. Human beings are different than animals. Men and women are different from each other. People are different 
from God. The created order is neatly divided into all of these different zones and these boundaries in between these different zones in the created order need to be respected. They need to be embraced. And we've seen that time after time throughout Leviticus. In this book, God is constantly telling his people to embrace his creational boundaries in part by keeping things distinct from one another. It's the logic behind pretty much all of the food laws that we studied several weeks ago, and it's the logic behind verse 19, a a popular passage that causes people a lot of consternation. These three prohibitions on mixing animals, mixing crops, mixing fabrics. These laws, in, in keeping these things distinct, the laws enabled God's people to embody in their own lives the creational order. They enabled God's people to respect and embrace God's boundaries in their everyday lives. And the hope is that if they honored God's boundaries in these small, uh, seemingly insignificant things, then if they got used to honoring God in these ways, then they would honor God's boundaries, embrace God's boundaries in the weightier things of life. Uh, Things like family or sexuality or spirituality. That is honoring God as creator. But a loving heart, a heart that loves God, is also committed to, it yearns to honor God as father, not just simply as creator. Love recognizes that God's covenant mercies are so wonderful that it's worth obeying him. A loving heart, a heart that loves God, will want to be faithful to God. A heart that loves God, a a faithful Israelite who loves God, would want to keep the Sabbath, make the sacrifice of peace properly, give God the first fruits of the harvest, even after three long years of waiting for that fruit to come back to those trees. A loving heart would want to reverence the sanctuary of the Lord. A loving heart would want to turn from rival gods or idols or mediums and necromancers. All of these religious laws that we see in this text are related to honor. Love honors God and love honors other people. Verse Three, you shall revere your father, revere your mother. Verse 29, do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute. Verse 13, you shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. Verse 32, you shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of The old man, or verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Each one of these commands teaches the Israelites to honor one another, honor those in authority, honor family, honor neighbors, honor the poor 
Honor even the foreigner who's in your midst. Love honors. Next, love protects. Love protects. Love is passionately committed to protecting the vulnerable from harm, exploitation, and dehumanization. Verse 14, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. Verse 15, you shall do no injustice in court. Verse 35, you shall do no wrong in judgment or in measures of length or weight or quantity. Verse 10 and verse 9, you shall not reap the edge of your field right up to its edge, nor gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. You shall leave these things for the poor and for the sojourner. And verse 33 and 34 unpacks that further. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. You shall love him as yourself. Now that's a wide-ranging series of laws, but every single one of them ensures that the vulnerable were protected. The ancient Near East was not normally an easy place to live. It wasn't like our modern societies with relief programs and charities that aimed to help people in need. There was no such thing as a social welfare program. And so at that time, people with physical or mental challenges were easy targets for cruelty. Aging mothers and fathers absolutely depended on their family to care for them in their old age. The poor had no one except their neighbors to turn to when they ran into times of crisis. Sojourners were very easily mistreated. And so these laws made Israel safe. They made Israel safe for the vulnerable God wanted to provide necessary protection. God made sure that the vulnerable were treated fairly, whether it was in the courts or the field or the city. God made sure that, uh, that the, these people who were vulnerable were protected from exploitation. God says, pay your workers on time. Make sure that the foreigners among you aren't taken advantage of. And God even protects them from dehumanization. Every single one of these laws upholds the dignity of the human person. Even the gleaning laws that we we looked at just a moment ago that I read in verses 9 and 10, these gleaning laws honored the dignity of the poor because they allowed the poor to work and to provide for their families by the sweat of their brow. These were protecting the dignity of human beings, whether or not they had wealth. Verses 20 through 22 provide protection for probably the most vulnerable member of any society of the time, a female slave. In every other society around, the female slave had no rights whatsoever, but here, God sees her plight. 
And God cares for her dignity. God cares for her safety. She is not the one punished. Only the man faces judgment for his sin. He needs to make restitution. He needs to seek forgiveness. And then if we cross-reference these laws with the other laws in Deuteronomy about fornication, then he needed to marry this slave and care for her the rest of his life as his wife. And now, in our day and age, that might not seem like the ideal solution to us, but at the least, we can see that God demands that this female slave is protected from further harm and exploitation. Now, I've heard people say things like, why can't God just outlaw this kind of abusive behavior in the first place? And the answer is, he did. The seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. The tenth commandment, do not covet your neighbor's female servant or female slave. Verse 22, this behavior is called a sin. God is not happy about it. But because he's gracious, God makes provision for the sinful sinful person to find restoration. And that leads us to the third commitment of love. Love pursues. Love pursues. Love doesn't just sit back and wait for others. Love is passionately committed to pursuing the good of others. And you hear it all through these laws. Stand up in the presence of the aged Pay your workers on time. Make sure that your measurements are accurate. Make sure that there is food in your field for the poor. Leave some food for them on purpose. Love actively pursues the good of the other, and love actively pursues reconciliation. Love pursues Reconciliation, verses 17 and 18, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is a change of focus in the laws. Up until this point, all of these laws taught you how to avoid doing wrong, but these two verses teach us how to act when you have been wronged. And you all know how it feels to be wronged. When you've been wronged, the human impulse is to hate the person who wronged you, to hate your enemy. You want to take vengeance. You want to bear a grudge. And so let's just imagine what that feels like, what, what it feels like. Remember those times that you have been hurt by someone. You've been there. It feels good to nurse a grudge, doesn't it? Uh, there's, there's something that's kind of perversely satisfying about savoring the sweet thought of revenge. But God says, don't do that. Instead, Pursue reconciliation. Reason frankly with your neighbor, meaning confront your brother, confront your sister, confront your neighbor in love about the wrongdoing that they did to you in order 
that the relationship can be repaired. Love pursues. And finally, love sacrifices. Love sacrifices. Love is so committed to the flourishing of other people that love sacrifices for them. Think about the cost of these laws. Uh, There was a lot of expense involved with keeping these laws. There's the obvious cost of giving away your food for free to the person who has need in the fields. But it goes beyond that. God calls his people to sacrifice their personal freedom to care for their family members. God calls them to sacrifice their nationalistic fervor to make room for the foreigner in their society. God wants them to sacrifice their comforts in order to serve others. He even tells them to sacrifice their desire for revenge by pursuing reconciliation. Love sacrifices. And so this is what love looks like. Honoring, protecting, pursuing, sacrificing. This is holiness in action. Remember those characteristics of holiness that I talked about from last week. Integrity, justice, mercy. When, when those virtues, integrity, justice, and mercy are put into action, you get love. And so that means that if you have failed to love, you failed to be holy. And holiness requires love. If you are not loving, you are not being holy. Old Testament scholar Jay Sklar nails this. He says, it does not matter how many other rules we are following. If we are not living these things out, we cannot claim to be holy. Or as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 13, even if I excel in outward signs of righteousness, if I have not love, I am nothing. Holiness requires love. And that basic mandate has not changed. The external circumstances of these laws have changed, but the heart of love has not changed, and that's how we can apply these laws to our present circumstances. We can understand the external circumstances that have changed and then discern within them the unchanging heart of love. Let's look, for example, at verses 27 through 28. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. And so these laws are discussing pagan practices related to mourning, to funerals, and to to lament. Now, we don't know all the details, but it seems like the people around them in the surrounding nations uh, of Israel, that these people uh, would mourn the dead by either cutting their hair or cutting themselves. Those are the external circumstances in this law. But the heart of the law is, is this fundamental question Will you honor God in your grief? Will you 
honor God in your grief, or will you follow the pagan practices of the nations around you as you mourn? And I hope you can see that that question hasn't changed, even though the external circumstances have. Now, around us, people don't necessarily cut their hair or cut themselves to mourn the dead, but we don't need to go all the way back in time to ancient Canaan to find ungodly mourning practices. We have enough of them here. And so the question is the same for us. Will we honor God in our grief? Will we honor God in our lament because love honors? It's the same thing for us in verse 19. You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Those external factors have changed. Christ does not command us to keep polyester and cotton separate. But Christ commands us to uphold God's creational boundaries in every aspect of our lives as much as we possibly can. Again, external situation changes. Principle of love is still the same. Or verses 9 and 10 about gleaning. I I know you all. Uh, I know that None of you are farmers. Uh, And even if you were, even if you had a lot of land, people don't glean like this anymore. Those external things have changed, but the heart of love hasn't changed. Will you, will we sacrificially share our resources so that the poor can flourish? And we could go on and on. We could apply this Uh, this paradigm to every single one of these laws, every single verse in this passage. The external circumstances may have changed on this side of the cross, but the commitments of love remain absolutely the same. Love honors. 1 Peter 2, 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God. Love protects. Hebrews 13, 1 through 3, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Love pursues. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, aim for restoration. Comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Love sacrifices. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. This is what holy love looks like. And, And before we move on, Let's just notice how different holy love is from the worldly love around us. According to our culture, love is either an emotion or it's affirmation. Love is something that you feel, the emotional sensation of being attracted to another person or another human being. 
or love equals tolerance. Uh, You love another person by simply affirming their lifestyle choices or their decisions or their beliefs without any judgment. And holy love is very different than that, but, but it's so much better than those things. Holy love certainly involves emotion. It has to have some emotive element to it. Otherwise, you would never be able to pursue reconciliation, for instance. Without any sort of love and tenderheartedness, you wouldn't be able to pursue the person who has wronged you. As one commentator says, it's as difficult to administer reproof with delicacy and tact as it is to receive reproof. Reproof must be offered in all kindness. Otherwise, it fails of its purpose. So love absolutely involves emotion, but love, holy love, transcends emotion. And so when the emotions fade, holy love can remain consistent because love, holy love, is about commitment. Similarly, holy love certainly involves support and affirmation. We, when we love someone, we absolutely want that person to experience dignity and freedom and flourishing. But at the same time, holy love is rooted in God's standards. And holy love insists on following God's standards as a way to find that flourishing. And so again, holy love is very different from worldly love. But it is better because emotions do fade. And if we hold to uh, some sort of 100% affirmation all the time without any boundaries, then I have seen this in practice. It actually opens up the door to injustice upon other people. And so on, on the other hand, compared to that holy love, dignifies and it challenges It holds everyone to the same standard, the person that is receiving the love, the person that's giving the love, and holy love is rooted in God, and it pushes everyone towards our destiny, which is union with God. And so it's true what the Beatles sang, all you need is love, we just need to make sure that it's holy love. Holy love is is what we need. Uh, But that goes to the second question. How can we offer holy love consistently? Honor, protect, pursue, sacrifice? That sounds exhausting. And, And we need so much more than just the Nike motivation, just do it. Just do it doesn't actually help us offer consistent love. And so for us to offer holy love with consistency, we need to know where the power for love comes from. And the text tells us, where does the power for love come from? The power for love is grace. Grace empowers love. Sixteen times in this text, God undergirds all of his commands with I am the Lord. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, 
your God who brought you out of slavery. In other words, it's redemption that generates love. How are you going to love the oppressed? By remembering how much God loved you when you were oppressed. How are you going to forgive those who have sinned against you? By remembering how quickly God forgives you when you sin against him. How are you going to sacrifice for the poor? By remembering how much God sacrificed for you when you were poor. Friends, grace creates love. And we see that all over the New Testament. The call to love is driven by Christ's love for us. The gospel makes us loving. Colossians 3.13, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Romans 15.7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. All throughout the Bible, grace creates love. And that's not just a theological ideal that we confess on Sunday mornings or that people write about in books. This is a historically verifiable fact that grace makes love. Uh, The historian and apologist John Dixon wrote an entire book about this. Uh, He called it Bullies and Saints. It's it's a, a book about the church's messy history. And in it, he gives an honest assessment of the church's messy history. Uh, There are highs and there are lows. There are absolutely lows in church history. It's a fact that Christians have often strayed from the royal law of love. But simultaneously, history has shown that on the whole, Christianity has been very good for the world compared to the general tendency for humanity to gravitate towards evil and exploitation, Christianity stands out as a grace. And John Dixon's final assessment of it is so encouraging. Just listen to what he says. He says that violence has been a universal part of the human story. The demand to love one's enemies has not. Division has been a norm Inherent human dignity has not. Armies, greed, and the politics of power have been constants in history. Hospitals, schools, and charities for all have not. Bullies are common. Saints are not. And that's the connection between holiness and love. Saints 
those who are made holy by grace, saints are God's gift to the world because saints must and do love. Going back to my friend in the pub, the solution for judgmental hypocrisy in the church is not less holiness, but more holiness. Because more holiness means more love. God is holy. He wants us to be holy. Holiness demands love. And so by grace, God makes us loving so that we can go out and do for the world what Christ has done for us. And so this week, walk in love. Walk in love. Draw near to Christ. Be transformed by his great love for you so that you can go out and genuinely honor and protect and pursue and sacrifice for the world around you. Love like this is powerful. Love like this is attractive. And best of all, love like this is holy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for loving us with such great and mighty love. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that in Christ you've shown us what love is, giving up of ourselves for the other. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for rescuing us from the oppression and tyranny of the devil. Thank you for showing kindness to us when we were poor. Thank you for, for becoming poor for us so that we could become rich. And we pray now that you would make us holy in the best ways, the most whole ways, which means that we would then also be most loving. We repent of the ways that we have fallen short of this royal law. And we ask your forgiveness. And we ask that we would have the integrity to be honest uh, with those around us when we're not loving. Forgive us. Enable them to forgive us. And then through our love, would you draw the nations to yourself? Would you make us a beacon of hope in the world that is harsh, a world that is harsh to those in need? We pray that you would empower us to look like Jesus, make us into his image of love so that our neighbors would see Christ and would turn to you as their holy God in faith. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.